Mac Power Users, Episode 98, Mac from Scratch. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. How are you, David? Outstanding. Um, You know, and I really mean that. You know, it, it's so fun getting online with you and talking about this stuff after a day of uh, the uh, the nonsense. Really? You have nonsense in your life? Oh, yeah. Way. <laughs> I, I got buckets of it. Okay. All right. Well, what we're going to talk about in this episode is something that we've gotten a lot of questions about recently. And I think it has to do with the fact that Apple has introduced quite a few new fancy Mac notebooks. But a lot of people are asking us, Hey, I just got a new Mac. Uh, What do I do with it? How do I set it up from scratch? What do you suggest? Maybe it's because there's kind of a combination of a lot of people getting new Macs and an operating system coming out at the same time. How do I set up a Mac from scratch? Whether it's a new Mac that I'm going to load all my stuff on, whether it's an old Mac that I just want to nuke and pave and put the new operating system on and have a fresh, clean start. How do I do that? So we're going to cover that in the show. Yeah. New Mac from scratch. Name says it all. So I thought that we had covered this in a previous Mac Power Users episode, and I've gone back and back and back through the archives. I think we've probably talked about it on various shows. I can't seem to find anything specific. Yeah, and we we did talk about it in reference to, um, I think, getting rid of an old Mac in one episode. And, you know, they do start to blur together, but it's been years, really. So it's probably time for a refresh of this discussion anyway. Yeah, it's been 98 shows, and I'm sure that that things change a little bit. So let's get into it. So the the first thing I think we should talk about is let's talk about a situation that we have just had personal experience with. And um, what happens when you get a brand new Mac? I know you just got a shiny new 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro. I just got a brand new MacBook Air. How do you take that that new Mac that's got a fresh, clean operating system on it, but no data, and move all of your data over there? Do you do stuff? I mean, because for me, it's a multi-step process of getting my old Mac ready and then moving stuff and getting my new Mac ready. And I've I've almost got it down to a science. Yeah, it's kind of scary how how good you and I are at this, which means we've spent way too much money and bought too many new Macs over the years. Yeah, I've got it down to a couple of hours. A couple of hours of downtime, and I'm right back where I started. It, I think one of the reasons why it's so much easier than it used to be is is the cloud. I mean, Dropbox, Absolutely. for example. You know, it used to be a, a massive you know pain just to get data transferred over, and you had file structures and folders and all these things, and... And even, you know, I, I'm thinking, because I'm old, uh, I'm thinking about floppy disks and sure. how you used to take these floppies and you had them color-coded and and you were trying to move stuff around. And I guess if you go back far enough, you didn't have to worry about moving your data because your data was always on floppies to begin with. But then at some point, we started using hard drives to move this stuff around. And it was just never easy. And you always forgot something. Mm-hmm. and. It just made you feel sick. Uh, I once um, had a whole website built that I uh, forgot to move over. And, <laughs> you know, it was kind of sucky when I realized that I had to rebuild that website. But, the, um, uh, you know, with Dropbox services, you just type in Dropbox. I mean, that's one of the very first things that's how I do when I sit down with a new Mac, get it going, is I set up Dropbox. Because that first sync is going to take a while. I think my current Dropbox storage is probably around 20 gigs. Mm. Well, actually, before we get to your new Mac, let's talk a little bit about 
do you start on the new Mac or do you do any prep work with the old Mac? Cause my journey in setting up a new Mac starts on the old Mac. Yeah, that makes sense. And it actually probably starts about the time that I order my new Mac and know that it's coming for sure. I, I kind of take that couple of days or a week that my new Mac is in transit to get my old Mac ready for my new Mac to come. Well, tell me about that. All right. Well, I mean, the first thing that I do when I know that I've got a new Mac coming, I'm going to take this opportunity to do some spring cleaning on my current Mac and make sure that I don't want to bring over anything that I don't have to. So we'll talk about uh, one of our sponsors, Daisy Disk, in a little while, but I'll use a tool like Daisy Disk to go through, clear out all the cruft of my drive, because the last thing that I want to do is is waste precious time bringing over data that I don't need on my old Mac. So I'll go through, I'll prune my data on my Mac, I'll go through my iTunes library, I'll make sure that there's nothing in there that I don't need and don't need to bring over. So I'll do some spring cleaning. And at this point, I'm really brutal about taking an analysis of what applications am I using and what am I not. And I'll also go through, and because I don't, uh, I always reinstall my applications from scratch, I'll also take this opportunity to go through and make sure that I have all of my information together. Back in the day, I would say I'd make sure that I have all of my install disks, but I haven't had to deal with an install disk, thankfully, in quite a long time. In fact, I think the only install disk I have now is my uh, Microsoft Word install disk, and uh, I don't even use the disk for that anymore. Once I get the disk, I burn that to a DMG and throw it on my Drobo, and we're done with that. Um, and and you actually threw me onto a tip about making a Magic install disk. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, boy, I wish I knew what episode that was. That, that was <laughs> like those are like old days. Those are way days. back in the archives. So I, I talked a long time ago about this. I think I've got a blog post on it. I'll take a look. But what I did was I made I think a hazel. You did a screencast on it at one point. A Max Sparky screencast. Uh, you know, maybe it was a screencast. Yeah. Uh, so I made a hazel rule, and it just looks at the downloads folder, and it takes DMG files and copies it to an external drive. It was okay. on my Drobo, and uh, I just had a folder called software, and it would look for and make sure it's a new version, and it would. Just anytime I download software, it just send a copy of it over there. And then I took a little 300 um, gigabyte um, USB drive. And whenever I'd go to install a computer or set up a Mac for somebody in my family or a friend or whatever, I would just take all the software and put it on that drive, including DMG images of you know Microsoft Office or whatever my files were that I was using. And then I could just plug that USB drive into the new computer, drag the files over to the desktop, and then just start going through them and deleting them as needed. Um, And I called it the magic install disk. And it's a really great way to work. Uh, One of the problems, or I guess one of the the reasons why I don't do that as much anymore is the existence of the App Store. And Mm -hmm. there just aren't that many disks. I, I still do keep images, though. I mean, for instance, I have images of Microsoft Office. I have images of Dragon Dictate because I, mm-hmm. I bought that on a CD or a DVD. Uh, I have images of Logic because I think I got the last version of Logic they put on DVDs. I have um, images so- of, of iWork, uh, iWork because that was the last time iWork was updated was when it was on a DVD. Yeah, me too. So you bought iWork. Cause iWork 09 is, you know, the most ancient of office suite applications, right? Right. <laughs> I, I almost think it should come on punch cards because it's so old, relatively <laughs> speaking, but either way it's on a DVD. Uh, and you so can got, get it in the Mac app store, but it's the exact same version that came on the last DVD I bought. So why rebuy it? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so I'm working under the same uh, same version, and I've got the disk image of that. So I do have some files in there. I, what I don't do anymore is automatically drag every disk image over to it, uh, like I did with the Magic Install disk. So I've, I've reduced some of the automation simply because I found I wasn't really using that stuff. Um, so, like when you when you burn your uh, Microsoft Office DVD disk image, you drag that to your to your Drobo or your Magic Install disk or whatever, right? I mean that that's not yeah. something you want to go digging around for. Okay, yeah, I did. No, and, and then like some fonts that I've purchased, I've got a little folder of fonts that I've purchased. I keep in the same location. So you know, I I was it Comic Crazy and a couple of the others. I got you know you know what's the once a year deal? It's on the first every January one. Comic book fonts. That's it. Comicbookfonts.com. They have a sale every year on January 1 where all their fonts are a penny for every year that has occurred. Mm-hmm. So next year will be $20.13. And I got like Hedge Backwards is one of my favorites that they have. And, and I got it for, I think I got it for $20.07 or $0.08. Cents. So I really got a good one on you guys out there who haven't bought it yet. But the, So I've got a folder of those. So, you know, I do drag that stuff over. But it sounds to me like you and I are a little different because uh, the setup you're talking about, about cleaning the old Mac and getting ready to get rid of cruft so it doesn't go over to the new Mac, um, sounds to me like you're going to do a, uh, a migration assistant type uh, exchange to the new computer. To some degree, yes. I, I do not migrate my applications. I'm going to take this opportunity to take inventory and take note of them, but I do not migrate my applications. And, and, and so, yeah, we can talk about that. You ready to go there? Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, when I get a new Mac, I always, that's one time that I just say, okay, that's it, starting from scratch. And the the data from the old Mac mm-hmm. does not get moved, except the stuff that's on Dropbox or wherever else, you know. And so, Which is probably it, most of your data. Well, most of the, you know, the fluid data. But it, it does kind of screw me over a little bit because... Uh, I've got a ton of little hacky things in there, you know, automator scripts and stuff like that. And and I usually try to save copies of those to Dropbox just as a, like a side thing. Like automator, you can you can do essentially a save as. You can duplicate and save. As I make interesting ones, I put them in there because I can share them with friends and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can have them available uh, for that basis. And then when I move over to a new Mac, I can usually find most of them that way. But still, there's things that I I don't get. And... And that's the the downside of the way I kind of just go into it like uh, blindly. But you know, Apple has this amazing migration assistant, and every time I use it, I'm I'm really impressed. You know, especially for friends that are you know non geeks, and they get a new Mac, and I help them out, and we do migration assistant, and it's just amazing to me. You just plug it in and come back in a couple hours, and it's got the same desktop screenshot, and it's got everything, and it just works. Um, am I getting ahead of myself? I think I might be. You might be a little bit, but that's okay. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's slow down. You tell me about getting ready again. Uh, well, that's that's most of what I what I do to get ready. I, I do have my Magic Install disk. I go through and I make sure that I do, because unless you bought something off the Mac App Store, even with the Magic Install disk, you're, you're probably going to need to make sure that you have all your passwords, all your serial numbers, and things like that. For me, it's easy because all of my serial numbers are stored in one password. For a little while there, I was making the transition where I was going from this archaic Excel spreadsheet that I had all of my serial numbers stored in, and then some stuff was stored in email. And thankfully, it's been a couple of years now since I've been using one password. So the last two uh, Macs that I've had, I've I've been able to get all of my stuff transferred over and just using that one password database of stuff. So 
I finally ditched the Excel spreadsheet and figured any serial number that's on there is probably old enough that it can disappear now. So, But you, you do want to make sure that you have all of your disks together. You want to make sure that you have all of your serial numbers together. And then obviously you want to do the basic research that you need to do to make sure that if you're making a major change to a new Mac, uh, especially if you're making a major platform change, uh, that your stuff's going to run. If you've got older software, mission-critical software, you need to do that due diligence. But that's not really what this show is about. So I think we're going to not really go much in depth there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you just um, need to be aware that, especially with a new Mac, a, a lot of people, that's when they upgrade their operating system is when they get a new Mac. So you need to be especially aware of, am I going to have any hardware incompatibilities because I'm going to a new machine? Am I going to have any software incompatibilities because this new machine may have a newer version of my operating system? Yeah. So I, I don't really care as much about my old computer as you do at that point. I mean, I, I want to make sure the data is in good shape and obviously everything's always synced over, but it's always synced over anyway. Yeah. It's already and, dead uh, to you by the time you've hit by now. Yes. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I, I, I mean, this computer that I've given all my love to for several years now is complete trash, and I can't wait to get rid of it because whatever's coming is newer and shinier. Okay. And that's when, you know, at least in the Sparks house, uh, people start making eyes on it. You know, <laughs> who's going to get it? Yeah, I see. It's a great house to live in. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted a, you know, I wanted this stuff so bad. These Maybe that's why I keep buying them now as an adult. I'm trying to fix it. You're right. you know? <laughs> I, I had the Atari 400 with the, it had a mesh keyboard where it wasn't an actual keyboard. It was this like plastic membrane and you had to like jam it down with your thumb to type, you know, 10 print hello or whatever. And uh, man, I wanted to get an Atari ST or an, or an Apple. A Mac was not even like possible for me. It was just, they were so expensive, but it was, um, such a big deal when I was a kid. Man, my house now, boy, you're you're doing good. Right. Dad gets a new computer. Somebody's getting a Mac. Right. Hey, I did find. I did. I did post that Magic Install disk to Vimeo. So I'm going to put that in the notes. Cool. Good deal. So, and then yes, then we get to the next question of okay, the new Mac has arrived. It's sitting on your desk. What do you do? How do you get your your data over there? The first thing that I do is I make sure that I have a couple, well, maybe backing up one more step, I make sure that I have a couple of backups of that old Mac. I've I've always got a time machine backup going. I've always got some kind of offsite backup going. But my backup method of choice, especially when you're transferring data to a machine, is a clone backup. For years and years and years and years, I've used SuperDuper, and I love SuperDuper. SuperDuper is an excellent program that will make a clone backup. But I tell you what, David, have you checked out Mike uh, Bombix? carbon copy cloner lately well you know now they, they've gone from the free model to a, a license model yeah i know that he has i i went ahead and bought it because i'd used it for years when it was on the free model and then i don't want to say that he didn't update it regularly but it, it just i always liked super duper better and i hadn't checked out carbon copy cloner for many years and i went and looked at it and he has got some amazing features in there you know he can for example he can clone a recovery partition he can encrypt a disk he can de-encrypt a disk right there within carbon copy cloner he can do some advanced things in the clones like verify the checksums so that you instead of just copying the data he'll verify the checksums to make sure that the data that he's copying is actually good um I'm not saying the super duper guy can't do that because I love super duper too, but I'll I'll tell you a little story about an issue that I had recently. And I think I might be making the switch to carbon copy cloner. It's very cool. The new one is very, I mean, I've already bought it. The new one's very cool, but anyway, so the, so carbon copy cloner is now 29 96. 
for and, a limited uh, time only. I think that's that's good until like August twelfth. So oh, yeah. So this so, shit. Mm. Uh, that's the day the show goes out. So hurry up, no, go get it's it. The day before. <laughs> oh, never mind. Disregard. So, so now it's thirty nine ninety five for yeah. you. Yeah. Suckers. They forgot to get there early. Hope you got I, it. I, I don't know. I like Super Duper still. Yeah, I paid for that. That's again a, an app I bought a long time ago. It's twenty seven ninety five. Does an amazing job backing it up. And I, I don't think I've ever really needed it to do much more than just make a mirror of my drive. Um, in fact, I think there's a free version of Super Duper, at least there used to be, that just yep. every time you do make a backup, it does the full you know, Monty and it takes a long time. Whereas if you pay for it, it does incremental backups. And it'll do um, some other stuff, it, like it'll back up to a disk image or a sparse bundle or whatever you want to do for the, for the paid version. Yeah. And honestly, you can't go wrong with either one of those. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's anything else I would use other than one of those two. Right. And, uh, and having a, a mirrored image is a good idea. Where that kind of falls in for me, because, you know, I've I've got backups running on these computers all the time. And uh, when I get a new computer, the old computer stays mine for about a month. You know, there's mm. just no, there's no reason to rush that. And because I don't want to find out that I deleted the website that I built, right? That was my big lesson. So the, the other one goes in a drawer and I just, you start using the new one. And if after a month or so, then things start to, you know, get to a point where I realize, okay, I really don't need the old one. And, you know, at that point, my wife or my daughter is like, you know, chomping at the bit for it. So then I'll reformat it and and give it to her. Uh, Mm -hmm. But before I do that, I will make a clone and stick that clone in a drawer and keep that there for another three or four months. Yeah, what I usually do is I I make a clone, I make a primary clone, I make a secondary clone, and that secondary clone sits in a drawer for a while. And then at some point, I'll actually probably archive that clone off to my Drobo for not necessarily forever, but maybe for six months or so. And you are serious. I am serious. But let me let me tell you why. Let me can I tell you what happened to me this last time? It was kind of a bad thing. Or should we make them wait? Should we take a quick break and come back and I'll tell them what happens? Oh, yeah. Let's get dramatic. Let's make dun, them dun, wait. Dun, dun, Okay. So <laughs> you want to talk about a sponsor? Yeah. Let's talk about our first sponsor. Our first sponsor is Daisy Disc. And I talked about Daisy Disc a little bit because they are really an integral part, not only of my everyday management of my disk space, because I've got one of these fancy smancy MacBook Airs that has a 256 gigabyte SSD. So disk space is a little bit at a premium, but I also use Daisy Disk when I am getting ready to move over my Mac and make a new Mac from scratch because I want to see exactly what's on my disk. I want to know what's taking up all my space and I want to know what is where and, and what's it doing there. So Daisy Disk is superior disk management for your Mac. It's an app that's designed for Macs by Mac lovers from the ground up. And it just has the most amazing thought out in interface of really it's 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 something that I would have never thought of the the guys who made daisy discs are obviously artists because that's just the side of the brain that they they think with because I never would have thought of this type of mosaic artistic method for showing how your disk space is used. And you're going to have to go uh, visit them at daisydisc.com and look at them in the Mac App Store to see what I'm talking about. But it's this interactive map of concentric circles that is color-coded. It's really quite pretty that will show you where all of your disk space on your drive is being used. And if you see a big blob of color in one area, you know, hmm, there's a big chunk of files that's being stored there. And you hover your mouse over and it will tell you, 
okay, well, this is your home directory. Okay, well, what's this in my home directory? Or this is my library directly, and this is my application support folder, and this is what's sitting in there. And it makes it very easy to see exactly where your disk space is going at a glance. Yeah. You know, I am using the heck out of Daisy Disk right now. It's like a perfect storm in my life on my 256 gigabyte SSD in my iMac. Oh, that's right. Because you, you, you won't get the suction cups out. No, it's, it's nuts. I, you know, so first, I don't know what I was thinking. I bought D- Diablo 3. Right? Oh, boy. I haven't played a video game in like 10 years. So everybody's like, you got to play this, blah, blah, blah. And I used to like those dungeon crawler games. So I went ahead and bought it. And I, so far I've played it like 30 minutes, but it's taking up, you know, massive amounts of space on my computer. Okay. And then, you know, my daughter is, uh, she did a volunteer thing and she's making a video of all these kids that she did this volunteer thing with. And then I've got this awesome screencast I'm getting ready to release. Um, it's going to be all about, um, PDF pen for iPad. It's like going to be like 15 minutes. It's going to be great, but it's like massive amounts of media files. I, so the bottom line is as I record this podcast, I have 13 gigabytes free on my, on my drive. I'm hoping we make it through the podcast. Yeah, yeah, we will, but just barely. In fact, I may, while we're podcasting, I may be using Daisy disc to save my bacon because this is crazy. And then, then I had something at work that needed me to put a big, big data store in my, uh, my windows. Right. Partition. So it's, everything is like, it's a perfect storm. Uh, okay. But if it wasn't for Daisy Disk, I wouldn't be able to deal with this. So I'm routinely in this application, probably once every few days, to find out what I can kill uh, to make everything work. Excellent. You know, with these SSDs, this software is really important. If you just get yourself a new MacBook Air or one of these Retina MacBook Pros, go check out Daisy Disk because you want to actively manage your 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 disk space. In fact, you should see my my little screen image of Daisy Disk right now. Uh, you know, because the way Daisy Disk works, if your computer has space on it, it the circles there's a there's a gap in them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you know how well you're doing. Like you know, usually you want to see like twenty five percent gap. You know, so it looks almost like a Pac Man, right? Yeah, yours doesn't look like a Pac Man. Mine's a circle. I'm gonna put a <laughs> send you a screenshot. It's like it's oh, just dear. a circle right now. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we make it through the podcast. Just in case we don't, we should probably let you know that you can find Daisy Disk in the Mac App Store, and it's currently on sale for 50% off. So you can pick it up right now for only $9.99. That is a steal. So go pick it up in the Mac App Store. And if you love it, let them know that we sent you. So thank you to Daisy Disk for their continued support of the show. Okay, drama is over. Tell us what you did. All right, my tale of woe. I should have known better. I should have known better. So I'm I'm very excited. I have my MacBook Air is coming to be delivered to me at the office, and I've I've got I know that I have a late night that night. I've got a late meeting with a client, and I know that I'm not going to get home until probably about eight thirty nine o'clock that particular night when it's going to be delivered. Of course, it's delivered on a Monday because it couldn't have been delivered on a Friday, so I could play with it all weekend. Whatever. So I I get ready the weekend before. I've got all my backups. I've got everything good to go. And I've got this Western digital hard drive, this, you know, portable Western digital hard drive that's, um, yeah, 256 gigs, about the same size as my SSD. So I think this is perfect. I've got some downtime during the day where I'm just going to be sitting in my office doing paperwork. I am going to make a clone of my MacBook Air onto this Western digital hard drive. You know, before I go to bed, the last thing I do before I shut it down Friday or Sunday night. And when I get up on Monday morning, I'm going to have this perfectly fresh clone. I'm going to take the clone with me into the office on Monday. When the MacBook Air arrives, all I got to do is unpackage it, pop the clone in. 
I'm going to be like 90% up and running before I even get home to my magic install disk because I'm going to use migration assistant. I'm going to migrate, you know, most of my stuff over, you know, about half of my apps or so are available in the Mac app store. So I'm just going to go ahead and download those. And then, you know, when I get home, I'll finish the setup and I mean, this, this is great. It'll just be sitting in the side of my office. It'll be doing its, its thing and everything will be perfect. Good plan, right? Okay. I, I don't hear the hole in it yet. No, sounds like a great plan. So everything works beautifully, just as I anticipate. And we'll, we'll talk more about the migration assistant in a bit. I, I get home. Everything works well. It's a couple of, a couple of weeks later, and I decide, okay, well, I'm ready to put this, this uh, portable, S, uh, the portable hard drive back into circulation. So I'm now going to take this, uh, this clone image on my portable hard drive, and I'm going to archive it to my Drobo. So I'm going to create a disk image and archive this to my Drobo so that I can put this portable hard drive back into circulation into my backup scheme, right? Okay. Okay. And the copy fails over and over and over and over again. And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's got to be something wacky going on with my network. It doesn't like the size. What's going on? Why does the copy fail? I go into the logs of SuperDuper, and it turns out the data on my hard drive is corrupt. The hard drive that I just used to transfer all of my data over to my brand new pristine MacBook Air. And so, wait a second. So, when it did the migration assistant, did it give you any errors? Nope. Okay. So was it a, was the hard drive physically failing? The hard drive was, was a- physically failing. It was in the early stages of a failure. I run disk utility on the hard drive, and it fails. It can't repair it. So, and it was a little bit older drive and, you know, didn't show any symptoms of failing before, but they don't, you know, that's how hard drives go. They just happen. And so now I'm freaking out a little bit because everything seems to be okay on my MacBook Air, but yet time after time after time, when I'm trying to get this data off this hard drive onto my, onto my Drobo, it keeps failing. And I'm, I keep noting, you know, the files where it fails. The, The... Now, just one second there. Okay. So when you say this drive, you're talking about the backup drive. The backup drive. Right. The backup drive keeps failing. But you still had the data on your old computer, correct? Mm, See, that's the thing. The old computer got sent away. Oh. Mm. So earlier when you were talking about how you made multiple clones and everything, Mm -hmm. that's what you're going to do in the future. Well, I did have multiple clones, but... Everything was fine. So I had already put everything back into circulation except for this one hard drive that I particular I specifically held out so that I could have, you know, my hard drive in a drawer. I thought I was being smart by putting my hard drive in a drawer. My MacBook my old MacBook Air itself was gone, but my hard drive was in a drawer. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. I thought yeah. I was being smart. It just, that happened to be the moment that that hard drive picked to die. So now I'm questioning the integrity of the data on my brand new MacBook Air. Was that hard drive dying the week earlier when I transferred the data to my MacBook Air? That's that's an interesting problem. It is an interesting problem. Well, see, now I'm better than that. Because I I keep the computer for a while. And I I do have a clone of it eventually. But it's the computer. With the the computer's last backup, wherever it is on our our system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, a word to the wise. Don't get rid of the old one until you're absolutely sure. Yeah. Well, what I ended up doing, and it was a painstakingly manual process that happened over the course of a weekend, is just every time SuperDuper failed, I made a note of what file it failed on, 
manually deleted it from the Western Digital Backup, started it up again. It failed again. You know, I went through this process. Finally, I found it was five photos in my iPhoto library that were corrupted. And I went to my MacBook Air, my brand new MacBook Air. Sure enough, those five photos were corrupted too. So I had transferred corrupted data from my Western Digital hard drive to my MacBook Air. Oh, just just the fact that you would sleuth that out, I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, I had to. What choice did I have? Otherwise, I was going to find those files at the most inopportune time. Yeah. But the good news is, is I had, because I had multiple backups, because I had Time Machine, because I had Crash Plan, I was able to go back in time. I was able to recover those files from good backups, because if you let this go, I couldn't let this go three months or six months down the line, because that by that time, my good data at this point may be overwritten by bad. Yeah. So I ha- I had to figure it out right then and there or not let it go very long because otherwise the, the good data may be overwritten. See, now you're just convincing me that for a future new Macs, my plan of not migrating yep. makes sense. Yeah. But see, it wasn't the – it, it would have been the same because what would you have done? How would you have moved your iPhoto library over? Yeah, yeah I would have just copied it over. Yeah, you would have gotten this – you would have cloned it to an external hard drive, right? Yeah. Plugged in the external hard drive and copied it over. I probably would have taken a clone of the entire hard drive and pulled mm-hmm. over something like that. Like my Aperture library uh, rests currently on my MacBook Pro, right? And it just I copied the library over. So if there was corruption in that folder, it would have come file, over too. Yeah, yeah. And that is what I really liked to get back around ten minutes later about Carbon Copy Cloner is because it has the ability to do a verified checksum as it copies the files. Yeah, that's now, a nice feature. It takes, I'm surprised SuperDuper doesn't do that as well. It takes a lot longer. I mean, when my normal incremental backups take about 15 to 20 minutes, this took yeah. over an hour and a half. So I only do that once a week because yeah. I can't have my nightly backups taking an hour and a half. But I but do. you want to make sure it's done right, and this yeah, is the way. that's the way. All right. So um, clone versus uh, total migration versus partial migration versus move your data only. Yeah, for me, move data only. Okay. How do you do that? I think we kind of talked about it, but you, you clone to a hard drive, and what do, you, what do you move? Yeah, most of this stuff is on Dropbox, and increasingly a bunch of it's on iCloud, too. So okay. when I log into a new computer and I put in my, my iCloud credential and I install Dropbox, you know, then it starts it starts rocking and rolling. You know, it starts pulling all that stuff down, uh, including my one password database, mm-hmm. which is on Dropbox. So, you know, all those license codes and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to wait for that stuff to find its way under the new computer. So, what when I said earlier, I really meant when a new computer shows up. One of the very first things I do is I hook up Dropbox. You know, I connect the dots for Dropbox so it can start piping in all that data. Yeah. Um, and, and otherwise I start setting up as a new computer and boy, there's a lot of stuff not to like about the Mac app store, especially the way, you know, it's the sandboxing rules are going into effect and some of our favorite utilities can't be sold there anymore. But there's, uh, you know, this is where Mac app store shines. You just load that app up and you just see everything you've bought and you press a couple buttons and they just download. There's Isn't no that license great? code. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the other thing is updates are the same way. You know, because I've got this Retina MacBook Pro, all the uh, apps are starting to, you know, the waves of updates are coming out to support the Retina, you know, screen resolutions. And I now I enjoy going to the Mac App Store to see what apps are getting fixed. Right. 
Whereas before I'd have to go to the websites or wait until I loaded it for it to think that it, there was an update. It was just, it was very herky jerky and you never knew that you had everything. Uh, with the Mac app store, you just press some buttons and it's really nice. So, so I'll start doing that at the same time too, including one password. I've bought one password in the Mac app store because I wanted it to be able to install on all the computers for everybody in the family. Well, I, I used to do exactly what you do. I used to do the manual migration, and I'd go into my library folder, and I'd move my mail folder, because that's how you got to get your mail over. I'd move my iTunes folder. I'd move my iPhoto folder. And then I would selectively go into that application support folder and move the individual items that I need, which sounds like that's what you do. Yeah. And yeah. I did that for a long time, but I have found that especially with Lion and Mountain Lion, Migration Assistant has gotten a lot better about not bringing over quite as much of the cruft. Well, I mean, that stuff is great. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I talked about on the Mac Roundtable, everybody was talking about all their their procedures they go through when they do a major operating system upgrade. Mm-hmm. And I just hit the update button. I mean, I just hit the update button. That's it. And everything just seems to work. I mean, usually I'm all about just using the simple uh, procedure. But for something about a new Mac, I, I think... I wish I was looked on the internet before we started recording because I wish I knew who first said this. I think it was Andy Anatko, but I'm not sure. Uh, but he talked about you know basically kind of survival for software where when you get a new computer you make every application earn its way back onto the hard drive. Absolutely. And um, I have a I really like that because of all the writing and screencasting and podcasting and all the other casting stuff I do. I have a lot of software on my computer and it just accumulates, you know, people send me betas of something or whatever. And so when I get a new computer, it's nice kind of cleaning it out and then just putting on the stuff I really use. And it allows me to kind of get a better idea of what it is I really use. I mean, what stuff can't wait, like, you know, Scrivener and Byword and OmniFocus. There's some apps that like I just install instinctively, but there's a lot that I don't. And it's funny if you go back and look at an older computer how many apps don't make the cut? Mm-hmm. Well, and then I always, even if I do migration assistant, the only thing I bring over is, is my user folder. I don't bring over any applications, and I just reinstall all those from scratch. I think and there's, there's a lot of good reasons for that. If you've got old legacy apps that are still not, you know, purely Intel, I mean, you know, because Apple's gone through a lot of changes in the last ten years. I mean, they they went they went from PowerPC to Intel. They you know, there's all these very 32 to 64 bits. So there's all been these um, these generational jumps for the technology and the applications that you use have lived through that. And if you've got an older version of an application, it may have a lot of cruft in there that you don't want to put on your fancy new computer. So you may just be able to go to the website and download the most recent version and and skip all of that. Right. And that's the other problem with the Magic Install Disk, frankly. The reason why I don't use it as as aggressively as I used to is that the stuff that I want to get that you download from the Internet, whether it be the Mac App Store or from a website, I want to make sure I'm downloading the most recent version. Just because my Magic Install Disk, you know, copied it over six months ago, that may be a really old version at that point. All right. Have we covered setting up a, a brand new Mac? I think so. I mean, there. You know, we've talked about installing the software and getting the data over, but we haven't really talked about some of our favorite apps and stuff. I guess that would be another show anyway. But you know, get one password on there, get Dropbox on there, set up your security. I want to talk about security later in the show anyway, so I mm-hmm. guess we can skip that. But yeah. um, that's the steps. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about what do you do when you kind of want that new Mac feeling without a new Mac. And I've always called this the nuke and pave when you've got a Mac that maybe a new operating system comes out and you really want that new Mac feel. So you're going to take this opportunity to completely erase it and start from scratch on your existing Mac. Yeah. But before we do that, why don't we, why don't we talk about our, our next sponsor, uh, which is a new sponsor for Mac Power Yay. users, and we that love is new sponsors. That is Drobo, and we've we've already talked about Drobo in the show. So okay, we're done. No, yeah. Um, I have been a fan of Drobo for many years, and David, I know that you have a Drobo as well. Drobo is one of those things that I always kind of saw and thought, boy, that'd be really nice to have, but I don't know that I need it. And as soon as I got my Drobo, I realized I need this. And if my Drobo were to to somehow go out of service and walk away from my house, I would go out and get another one immediately tomorrow. So what is Drobo? Drobo is easy, safe, expandable storage. We we hear all these fancy terms and, you know, we're Mac Power users. We get this stuff, you know, RAID 1, RAID 5, RAID 0. What What is all of this stuff? Because we know that having one copy of your data isn't enough. And we know that we need backups. But Sometimes, especially because we have these smaller SSDs, we can't fit all of our data on our hard drives. And that was one of the the big things that happened for me, especially when I went over to the MacBook Air. I had to accept that some of my data that I've always carried around with me for years because I had these 500 and 750 gigabyte and terabyte hard drives inside my computers was just going to have to go. I didn't need to carry around it with me forever. And that's where the Drobo came in. And Drobo allows you to have a safe, expandable, redundant storage because what do you do is you start off with at least two drives that you stick in your Drobo. And it doesn't have to be the exact same drives. You could, what do you have or what can you buy or what's on sale? You can stick in a terabyte drive and a two terabyte drive. You can stick in a a 500 gigabyte drive and a 200 50 gigabyte drive. You know, it doesn't matter. Stick in what you've got and Drobo smart and it will do the calculation and it will make sure that your data is redundantly backed up so that if you have a drive failure in one of your drives, or if you're paranoid, you can even set it for double drive redundancy that if a drive is to fail, your Drobo can automatically recover without any loss of data. So it's all of the benefits of RAID, but you have the flexibility to add any make any model, any size hard drive, as long as it's a three and a half inch SATA drive or in their new models, the two and a half inch drives will fit uh, to however you want to expand your storage. You need more storage, you pull out a smaller drive, you pop in a newer drive and Drobo dynamically expands itself as it needs to. And these Drobos can hold up to 36 terabytes. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to need all that kind of storage, but you know, it's kind of like closets the stuff expands to fit the space available yeah especially you know in this day and age where we've got these 10 megapixel cameras in our pockets and you know we're taking video i mean everybody's doing a lot more media rich stuff these days uh, and you got to put it somewhere I, I i'm a big fan of drobo as well the first time i saw them they were at MacWorld many years ago when they kind of had their big coming out that one year when the mm-hmm. drobo was brand new and they had this demonstration where they'd be playing a video off the Drobo, and then they would just yank a drive out. Oh, you know, terrifying! Take any drive and just yank it out, and you know, having you know grown up with computers, that obviously made me cringe, and it just worked. And they do a great job of managing this stuff for you. 
the RAID drives are tricky. You need to have generally matched drives. I'm sure I'm going to hear about this, but you know, it's not easy to run a RAID system. A Drobo is easy. You know, that's what you're paying for is that they figured it all out for you. And it's not simple math. I mean, they get more storage out of those drives than the sum of the parts. If you think about it, um, it's not like if you have two terabytes of combined Drobo storage, you're only going to get one terabyte of storage in there. It works differently from that. It's like a black art. I don't know how they do it, but it works great. I don't know how they and do I, it, but they have a storage calculator on their website so you can figure out exactly how much storage you're going to have with the drives you're going to stick in it. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I'm a living testament. I have a Drobo drive. So I that first year when they were so big, I, I got one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I've said on the show before, I've got kids and the kids are, you know, kids of this day and age they're making video and they're making data heavy stuff and i want to keep all the stuff they make and so do they so we're you know we're moving stuff constantly to the the family drobo mm-hmm. and a couple of years ago we had a a power spike which is unusual in california we don't usually get those here Seriously? and the, yeah and it fried one of the drobo drives i mean just like wham and i i saw the spike you know you you know the whole house like lights up and I looked over at the Drobo and one drive was red. And so whatever it did, it fried one of the drives, but I didn't lose any data. I went down to the, you know, Best Buy, bought a new three and a half inch drive, jammed it in there. And then it did its magic for about a day as it kind of recombobulated. And I was back up and running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to be talking more about Drobo as the year goes on. You can find more information about Drobo at Drobo.com and check out the new products that they introduced, their new Thunderbolt-enabled products, including the Drobo Mini and the Drobo 5D. They've also got the Drobo FS, which is the Drobo that I have, uh, and the original Drobo models. So go check them out at Drobo.com, and we want to thank Drobo for their support of Mac Power users. Okay. All right, what next? All right, so so you've got an old Mac that you want to start over from scratch and you want to make into a new Mac. Yes, I do. I need that new Mac feeling. Yeah, complete with that new Mac smell. I don't think you're going to get co- that back. That costs extra. That does cost extra. I think there's a spray that you can get. So Yeah. There are a couple of ways that, that you can do this. Um one of the things that that intrigues me now with especially with the start of lion and now mountain lion is this whole recovery partition have you ever had to boot into a recover from the recovery partition it's pretty yes, cool yeah it's really cool you know just in general this idea that you need to go back and rebuild it is an affliction particularly um found with former windows users that's true and that's how, it's interesting to me when you talk about it because I know you've basically been a Mac user your whole life, right? I have. Okay, but but, but isn't I mean, what else are you going to do on a weekend? Isn't that kind of fun? I mean, that's the best thing you can do on a Saturday is like completely rebuild your Mac from scratch. Oh man. Okay. Well, I, I on a Windows machine, and granted, it's been years since I regularly used a Windows machine, but I remember it was like. Every six months, it was a matter of course that you just rebuilt it. Well, that's not fun. But building a Mac from scratch is fun. So so you bring it home, put it on your kitchen table or wherever, and watch football. And you'd spend the whole day feeding disks in. Because it just got so nutty. And I don't know if that's true for Windows now or not. Write me if it is. Because I I just don't know. But uh, it used to be you really had to do it. It wasn't like an option. Because the machine just like would grind to a halt and right. then you'd rebuild it and it'd work great. And about a month later, it, you'd start on that slow decay again. <laughs> and so then when you switch over to a Mac, 
and I know we have a lot of switchers that listen to our show, um, you just instinctively think, no, you know, uh, my Mac has been u- around for a year. It's time for me to, to do the nuke and pave. And I just don't think it's that necessary very often. I mean, that ties into what I was saying earlier about the operating system update. Um, I remember, I think it was when Tiger came out. Was that 10.4? I think so. I, I was telling an Apple genius friend of mine, like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, new updates coming out. I need to, like, you know, rebuild everything. And back then they even had more options. Apple doesn't make it as easy now as they used to, to do the nuke and pave as part of an install. And my genius friend said, Dave, what? What's wrong with you? You just put it in and press update. <laughs> and uh, it really does a pretty good job of, of pulling it off. So now that I've convinced you you don't need to do it, let's go back and say, how do you do it? Let's teach them anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there are a couple of, couple of ways to do this. Um, one is, let's, let's say you're taking the opportunity because you're reinstalling a new operating system to do this. One way that you could do it is go ahead and after you've got all your backups that we've already talked about, go ahead and do what David does. Hit the install button. Install your backup on top of whatever you've got, because let's say you're going from line to mountain lion or even snow leopard to mountain lion, because you can do that. Just hit the button and see what happens. Because one of the things that that's going to do when you hit the button to upgrade to either lion or mountain lion is it's going to create that recovery partition for you. And you're going to download. Now, we'll probably put a link in the show notes. There are all these ways that you can make these USB recovery keys and things like that. And and that's good, too. I mean, creating the USB recovery key is basically like creating a, a boot-up CD for your for your Mac because Apple doesn't supply those anymore. But the trick is, and, and also check in, if you've got a newer Mac, you're going to be able to boot up from that recovery partition and download the latest version of the operating system on even a bare drive if you decide that you need to do that at some point in the future. Obviously, you need to make sure that your Mac will support that. Or if you make that little Lion Recovery or Mountain... I don't know if they've updated the Mountain Lion Recovery um, little CD maker thing yet. Or uh, floppy sure, drive I'm maker I'm sure thing somebody's yet. done it. Yeah. yeah. But you can, you, can make a, you can make a USB drive of it. I mean, there, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But one of the ideas is just go ahead and upgrade, create that recovery partition... And then from the recovery partition, if you decide you want to go ahead and nuke and pave after you've done the upgrade, go ahead and do it. And you can re-download the operating system from the recovery partition and recover how we've discussed. You know, at that point, you'll start with a fresh, clean machine with a new install of the operating system. And you can recover either from a clone backup like we've discussed or the migration assistant or or just bringing over your absolute – I mean, it, basically at that point, it's it would be just like you have a new Mac. Yes. And how do you get to the recovery partition? Well, when you restart your Mac, you're going to either hold down Command and R to boot into the recovery partition, or you can just hold down the Option key and you'll see a list of all the available boot partitions. Yeah, that you know that option key doesn't work all the time in Mountain Line. Hmm. In my it has in for my me. experiments. Okay. Okay. So maybe there's something weird with my install. Or maybe this was back in the beta, but mm-hmm. I was having trouble getting the option key to work, but command R always works. Okay. To get you into that recovery partition. And there's a couple tricks to that. Because when you run the recovery partition and say reinstall mountain line, if it sees there's data already in your drive, it's just going to reinstall the operating system and, and preserve your data. It's going to do what we would have previously called a clean install, right? Yeah. yeah. Or Actually, there was a different name for it. What did they call it? Where it basically took everything off and put everything back. Um, 
I'm getting old. I don't think anyway. it can take it off and put it back. Well, it wouldn't take it off, but it would basically rebuild underneath it. Oh, man. Okay, well, whatever. I'll, I'll think of it in five minutes. But, but what you want, if you're looking to do a clean install, uh, and, and first of all, that is the proper behavior because you shouldn't just like wipe out everybody's data without telling them, right? Go for but it. But if you want to do a clean install from the recovery partition, you want to format the, the drive mm-hmm. the, and then reinstall. And then you will get a nice clean install of the operating system. Yeah, just like you've got a new Mac out of the box that all it has on it is the operating system and and you can proceed to upgrade just like we discussed. And you are going to need an internet connection. Yeah, you are going to need an internet connection. This is not something that you want to do when you're on vacation in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and if frankly if you've got an ethernet connection, that's probably That'd a much be good. better way to go. Yeah. yeah. You can do it wireless, but I recommend if you can plug in, do plug in. Yeah, because these, I mean, these are big files. These are a little over 4.3 gigs Yeah. to download the operating system. Yeah. And then Apple does have a do-it-yourself recovery tool. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Now, that's what I was asking about. Has that been upgraded for Mountain Lion? I, if so, I need to upgrade my key. Yes. Okay. I'll need to, I'll need to make a note to myself to upgrade my key. I actually keep one of those for when I'm traveling. Um, you know how I've got the... Uh, the grid it system and it's got that little yeah. zipper in the back because whenever I travel I take my grid it with me. In, yeah. in that little zipper in the back, I've got one of these old, you know how when you go to pres- to conferences, the people in the media hand you these USB keys with garbage on them. I mean, yeah. I mean very valuable information that I of course take time to thoroughly review. Yeah. Yeah. Um I've I nuked one of those and and made one of those into my recovery key and I've just stuck it into that little zipper in my my grid it so because I did have a I, I had a hard drive fail once when I was in a hotel on the road traveling for work and that was not good. Well, you know, if I was on the road and my hard drive failed, I think I'd just put my computer back in the bag and just work off my phone for a couple of days or my iPad. Well, these were in the days before phones and iPads, but yeah, okay. You know, you're probably right because it was also in the days before Dropbox, so I probably couldn't have gotten a lot of my data back anyway. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because the world has changed. I guess that's another reason why we're doing the show over again. It, it really changes your whole attitude about this stuff. I'm I'm way too cavalier about it. At, at some point, I'm going to get completely hosed. Mm-hmm. I'm certain of it. Yeah, but you got backups. You're good. Yeah, and I have lots and lots of backups. And I guess we that's kind of implicit in this show that whenever you start playing with setting up a new machine, I mean, the fact that that safety net is there and you know you can always go back and obtain that data is is really important. As Katie learned with this most recent backup, as I learned when I flushed a website, it's uh, it's real important. Yeah, but I think one of the things that I learned in this episode with with my backup issue of potentially having copied, which I ultimately did, although thankfully not much, having potentially copied corrupted data onto my good machine and then putting that machine back into circulation with my backups, I quickly became into a position where I was corrupting good backup data with bad data. Yeah. And the problem is, is if you let that go on for too long, you're going to lose copies of your good data. You're going to find yourself backups are not the same as archives, which is why one of the reasons, you know, you think that I may be crazy I still have the archive on my Drobo because I have so much space on that thing. 
I still have the archive on my Drobo for my last two computers when I got new computers. I have the 2010 MacBook Air archive, and uh, I ha- which means I have the um, 13-inch MacBook Pro archive that I made in 2011 or 2010 for when I transferred transitioned to that 2010 MacBook Air. Both, yeah, see, and I, I, both I sitting on my Drobo. I just don't keep it that long. I just don't keep it that long. I, I do what I do is I put the clone. You know, when I'm ready to get rid of the old Mac, I clone it. I guess I said this already in the show, but I clone it and I stick that clone in a drawer and, you know, it stays there a long time, but within a year it's, it's, you know, it's overwritten and that's that. Right. But I guess the point that I want to make is what if I had not caught the corrupted data on my hard drive? I could have been a year down the line before I needed something and found out that it was bad. And where would I have gone? If I don't, if I don't have those archives, I have no way to recover that data because a backup is not an archive. And that makes a lot more sense, but I still probably won't do it. Okay. Well, you got all that space on your Drobo, so maybe you should think about that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that kind of raises a question, though, about backup as you're going through this process. And something I I tell people to do, you know, as soon as you start rebuilding your new Mac or rebuild your old Mac, you want to start backing that up, but you don't necessarily want to back it up over your old backups. Correct. I guess this is the same theme. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like the... um, that doesn't mean it's okay to just like zero out your time machine on the old computer or zero out your super duper backups uh, because for exactly the same problem that you described, either you're missing data or you have corrupt data. You don't want to just go there. I mean, so you're going to have to have a few extra drives in circulation and that used to be a, a bigger deal than it is now too. I mean, if you look in the staples ad, you know, you can probably go get a, a decent sized backup drive for like 30 or $40. dollars mm. Maybe a little bit more than that, but yeah, basically. Well, if you're on SSD, though, if you're on SSD, it's they're not they're not very big, you right, know. Right. I, so, but see, I don't even know if you could go buy a 256 gigabyte hard drive anymore. Yeah, you can. Can you? Okay. All right. I mean, I, I just bought one a few months ago for my sister-in-law. She had a 256 gigabyte hard drive in her MacBook, mm-hmm. and it's like a three or four year old MacBook. And I said, you got to like regularly backup. I went and bought it for her. I think it was forty dollars. Really? You know? Okay. So. It's not that expensive to to have those things, and I mean, what's your data worth? I guess that's what you got to ask yourself. More than forty bucks. Yeah. Oh. All so right. you back up while you do it. Have some fun with it. You know, look for some new apps. Look for some old apps. Uh, uh, the the one thing I always regret because of my attitude towards this stuff is I do lose some of my automation stuff inevitably because you know I've I've been tweaking. I'm constantly tweaking my computer. And, uh, you know, like text expander syncs over Dropbox. So that stuff just comes in. Um, but like keyboard maestro rules and, um, automator rules, I I've gotten really good because I've got burned by this a few times about saving that to a folder in Dropbox. Yeah. But not everything's there. And I always find a few things missing or keyboard shortcuts, you know, command PP, you know, one of my favorite ways to print. I always have to go recreate that whenever I set up a new computer. Whereas if I just use migration assistant, it would just show up. All right, so basically what you're saying is, you know, do it if you need to. You don't think it's a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon, and it is not necessarily necessary. Not necessarily necessary, I guess. Yeah, you said that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that I wouldn't do it for the heck of it, but if you've got a problem, 
go ahead and rebuild. It, it is, like we said, kind of fun to see that new clean screen and, you know, the little video that Apple shows you. and Dance a little there, jig when the music comes on. There is something to be said for knowing that, you know, everything is clean and there's no corrupted stuff there. And the Mac App Store combined with Dropbox makes it really easy. The, the barrier, the pain threshold is much lower than it used to be. Right. right. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's talk about our last sponsor. Yeah, our last sponsor for the show is Fujitsu. And, you know, I had a client in my office today who said, you know, I see that scan snap you got on your desk. And I said, yeah. He said, I was looking at it and admiring it the last time I was in your office. I said, where are you? He said, I want you to know that I, I bought one on, uh, online this, this past week. And it came this weekend, and I set it all up. Really? And, and we proceeded to spend the next, you know, 20 minutes or so talking about paperless and how we were going to run our paperless offices and our paperless workflow. I think this whole concept of going paperless is something that the public at large, not just us geeks, really wants to do and is really interested in doing. People want to get rid of this stuff in their life. Yeah, there's a book about that. There is a book about that. I, I believe I mentioned to him that there was a book in, in the iBook store that he could buy. Yeah. And then he turned around and he said, oh, well, I have one of those Android tablets because it was like 150 bucks cheaper. Yeah. And so then I well, said, oh, there's a PDF you can buy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the thing about the ScanSnap is that it just makes it so easy to capture that paper. And they've, they've thought of everything and they support the Mac. I mean, this company has been there on the Mac since this product has really been out there. And that's why I, I think one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan is that they have very mature software. I mean, and as the computers have got better, so has the software. I mean, it's continually developed. There's so many hardware manufacturers that just kind of mail it in when it comes down to making Mac software for their hardware. Uh, these guys, they really, they kill it. I mean, the OCR component, as an example, the ScanSnap software has built an OCR. It uses Abbey Fine Reader technology. Mm -hmm. right. So it's the, the best OCR technology, I think, out there. You just check a box, and then when you scan something new through your scan snap, and they've got different models, it's going to go through and automatically OCR that for you. Well, when you start combining that with some of the other stuff you can do once you know your computer knows the contents of a file, it's really powerful. I mean, that's it's in the paperless book. I'm sorry to keep talking about it, but the, uh, the you know the Hazel rule can look and say, hey, if he just scanned a document that includes the word um, a, a utility bill, then give it the name utility bill, put the current month on it and file it away for them. And that's the way I do it. You know, I put it in the ScanSnap, push the button, it goes through. It's the ScanSnap OCR technology that makes that a one button process for me. Yeah, it goes from a dumb piece of paper to something digital that you can archive, store, back up. And then the OCR is what really makes it intelligent. Yeah, yeah. And all that just happens. And they got, they got three models that you want to look at on your Mac. So they've got the S1100, which is kind of like the, the portable one. The pocket you, scanner. Yeah, you can stick that in just about anything. It's it's about the length of a, was I think it's about 11 inches. Yeah, it's, it's like um, a large ruler, really. Yeah, exactly. And um, it scans uh, 7.5 seconds per page. Um, it works on USB power, USB 2.0. So if you've got this, the scanner and a USB cable, you can capture something. Yep. And then if you want to step up to the S1300i, which is the newest model, and that scans up to 1,600 dots per inch. Um, it's got a sheet feeder for up to 10 sheets. Uh, it does 12 pages per minute. Or uh, at colored, uh, 150 dpi, black and white, 300 dpi, it's, I believe, about 24 
pages per minute. It's really fast. Yeah, and the ScanSnap, the big feature about the S1300i is this thing is really optimized for the cloud. It will scan direct to Dropbox. It will scan direct to Evernote. It will scan direct to your iOS devices. They've really capitalized on the cloud. Yeah, I get a lot of email because of the paperless book from people who are getting into this, and it seems to me that this is the most popular one. For people who write me, they're all getting into this S1300i. And then there's you know the big one, the S1500, and that, that's the the that's desktop the one that's scanner. on my desk right here. Yeah, and that one can run up to it's got a sheet feeder for up to fifty sheets, so you can just load that sucker up and push the button. And all of these include the same awesome ScanSnap software that does the OCR and and takes care of these problems for you. Another thing it does is you can have it um, spotlight comment uh, words from the document that you highlight. So like if you highlight um, a name or a utility company or something on a, on a piece of paper before you scan it in, it puts that in spotlight comments for you. Right. It's just crazy. I mean, how many software or hardware manufacturers out there are thinking about this kind of stuff for the Mac? And, you know, I think Fujitsu's alone, really. It's amazing. And the S1500 really zooms through a stack of paper like you would not believe. Stick a stack in there, press the button, and it flies through it. And it's got this really neat, I don't know if they use sonar or magic or fairy dust or what that they've put in there. Maybe unicorn tears? I don't know. But it's really good. You, I almost never have a double page feed. And it is awesome about recognizing it when there's a little paper misfeed or a little issue it will say oh something's not quite right here do you want to you need to double check the scan and make sure it's okay or do you want me to rescan that for you um, so it's really good especially if you're scanning mass volumes of data to get good scans and know that oh you didn't miss every other page or you didn't miss a couple of pages here or there because that can be a big deal well it is a form of sonar i'm totally going off the cliff here but okay. it is a form of sonar and it, it does ping the image and it knows the thickness and when it, it senses two pages go through it tells you yeah it's just you know they thought about all the the traditional friction points that people have with scanning documents i mean it does both sides of the page it it corrects the orientation for you it just takes a lot of the tedium out of the stuff and if you want to get serious about scanning documents and go get yourself a fujitsu scan snap Right. Don't think twice. Just go get one. And uh, thanks to you can find more information over on our website at MacPowerUsers.com. Click the link for Fujitsu, and you can find more information by going to ez.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. And we thank them for their continued support of our show. Yes, please. And please do go through the website because, you know, it's great to see these big companies starting to support this podcast medium. And mm -hmm. we want them to know that, that the people that listen to these shows are interested. Absolutely. So let's talk about feedback. And yeah. uh, I'd like to start by going into this web security question because the whole Internet's talking about it. And, and we covered it briefly in the last show in your 1Password spot. Right. We did. And, you know, the news was just kind of coming out at the time we recorded that show. We've learned a lot more since then. And and so the well, story is yeah. is this thing about, was it Matt Honan? Is that his name? I believe. I, I thought it was pronounced Han, but I'm not sure how you pronounce it. So Okay. So he's a wired reporter. And somebody. Formerly of Gizmodo. Yeah. Okay. And somebody decided to, you know, wreak havoc on his life. And apparently the reason he was targeted is because his Twitter handle is Matt, M-A-T. And it's so unique to have your first name or even a three-character Twitter handle. He was targeted for something as simple as that. Can you imagine? 
No, I can't. I figured it was just somebody with a grudge. No, no. He apparently, if if you read the Wired article, he apparently has had subsequent contact with his hacker. And it uh, initially the thought was bec- they they targeted him because they wanted to get backdoor access to the Gizmodo Twitter feed because obviously that's a very high volume Twitter feed and they had quite a few followers. But they said no, that was just Grady. We targeted you because we wanted your username. Yeah. Mm. Great. Fantastic. Well, yeah. so what they did was, well, you want to explain it since you're more familiar with the Yeah, uh, the I mean, I, I, I can tell you in a, in a nutshell what they did. There's a there's an entire article that Matt wrote for Wired, and he wrote up a, another piece on his blog. And uh, let me just say that if you do nothing else or read nothing else that is linked in our show notes, you need to read this. It's a lengthy article, but it is it is worth reading because to me, what struck me is we really need to understand exactly how our digital life is interconnected. I mean, this is the World Wide Web after all. Everything is intermingled. But the short version is, is that the hacker got into Matt's iCloud account. And when he got into Matt's iCloud, and I'm assuming it's a he, he's had correspondence with him, and it seems to be a he. When the hacker got into Matt's iCloud account, he was able to do several nasty things. Um, One is he was able to get access to Matt's email. And as you know, we use email as a medium for so many things. And many other websites will use your email to send you password resets. So once he got into Matt's iCloud account, he was then able to prompt other services, including Gmail, to send password reset requests to Matt's iCloud account, which means that he was able to leapfrog from the iCloud account into his Gmail account. Yeah, so... Yeah. So let's slow down. Okay. Um, so the, and the the part that really is concerning, frankly, as an Apple show, is that first step. So he got Apple to reset his .me email account. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how he did that. How did the hackers get into his iCloud account? Um, basically, what the hackers did is they said, "Well, we have our." Initially, we thought that they brute forced his password because he admitted. Matt admits he made a couple of mistakes here. One is that his password was only seven characters long, and two, that it hadn't been updated in several years. So it's... Bad. Bad on. If he listened to us, he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. It's He'd have e- one password installed. It's easy to imagine how this could have been brute force hacked. But as yeah. it turns out, it wasn't. The way that the hacker got into the iCloud account was kind of due to multiple security lapses with multiple services. What the hacker was able to do is the hacker was able to, through basic Google searching and social engineering, figure out what Matt's primary email address was. You know, from the web, his About Me page, he figured out what Matt's email address was. And then he went over to Amazon. And if you call Amazon, there's apparently a security loophole that Amazon has supposedly since corrected, since this story broke, where if if you call Amazon you can add information to your Amazon account. They, they won't actually give you a um, give you information from your Amazon account, but you can add additional information to your Amazon account. So what the the hacker did is he added a fake credit card number to Matt's Amazon account, and then the hacker immediately turned around and called back and i'm hoping i'm i'm getting the details of this cuz i'm not reading it directly off his article some of this is off of memory the hacker then called back immediately spoke to somebody else and said i've lost access to my amazon account can you tell me how to get back in and one of the ways that you can get in is by confirming your email address and the last four digits of your of your credit card number well yeah. so he just confirmed the last four digits of the cr- fake credit card number that he just gave them 
once the hacker got into his Amazon account, I suspect he could have done a lot of stuff, like including ordering a whole bunch of stuff and running up a bill. Change the address and go crazy. Yeah. Um, that probably would have been a little bit risky because it could have been potentially tracked. But yeah. what, what they instead did is they were able to get the last four digits of his real credit card number. Because Amazon, if you log into your account, will show you the last four digits of your credit card number. Yeah. So according to Matt and the reports that Wired did and the research that Wired did, once you had the last four digits of the real credit card number, most people tend to use the same credit card online or for multiple things. A lot of us don't have dozens of credit cards that we use for different services. So at this point, they had Matt's email address. They knew his iCloud account, and they had the last four digits of his credit card number. With this information, they were able to call up Apple and get a password reset. And according to the people that they spoke with at AppleCare, they were able to initiate a password reset without knowing the security question answers to the, you know, you now have to set security questions, without knowing Matt's password, but by identifying him by billing address, which they were able to get through public records and possibly through Amazon, or because it's probably a shipping address, and the last four digits of his, of his um, credit card. And this That's was just crazy. That's just crazy. Because think about how often the last four digits of your, of your credit card are yeah. available. Right. And this was the information that Apple accepted as authentication that the hacker was really mad and sent the password reset. So yeah. with, with the password reset, the hacker was able to get in through the web. Over. Yeah, yeah, to get in through the web to Matt's iCloud account, sent the notification of the password reset immediately to the trash. So unless Matt happened to be holding his iPhone in his hand looking at it, he wouldn't have seen it come through. Uh, and then once he was in his iCloud account, he had access to all kinds of things. Um, unfortunately... Well, well, that- Go ahead. Then he presumably reset the password. Re- re- yeah, right. Reset it to lock so Matt out. at that point, Matt's out. And then right. he can just go to whatever web service you want to pick and say, I lost my password. Please send me the reset in, in my email. Right. And among those, he was able to get access to Twitter, um, Gizmodo's Twitter account, because at one point his Twitter had been ac- uh, access to Gizmodo, and Matt's Gmail account, which gave him access to all of his Gmail and his, he used Google Voice extensively and other services. Uh, I mean, so this is just huge. And then apparently, this, according to Matt's interactions with the hacker, this wasn't necessarily meant as malicious. It was just meant as a method to keep Matt out or keep him busy. Then because Matt uses services like Find My iPhone, Find My Mac, Find My iPad, they sent remote reset commands to wipe his iPhone, wipe his iPad, and wipe his Mac. It's just yeah. horrible. Crazy. Crazy. And and really, Apple shares a lot of the fault here. I'd say probably most of it. Well, and Amazon, too. Yeah, but, I mean, if someone someone calls and says, I have the last four digits of, of somebody's credit card number and their address, and you're going to give them, they're going to reset their password on that? I don't know about that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how, how you can get access to somebody's Amazon account and add information to it. That seems like an interesting loop. I'm not trying to take the blame off Apple by any means. Um, one of the yeah. issues that, that I addressed in, in the blog post that I did to this is people have come out now since Matt's story saying, you know, hey, Matt's not necessarily the only one who this has happened to. Um, you know, Wired has found a couple of other people who say that I've had a similar event. Um, 
I'm going to mispronounce this name, but Marco Carpin, uh, who is a developer, says back in 2008, Apple's security procedures were pretty lax. And somebody who just emailed Apple support saying, I'm Marco, I forgot my password. Can you send me a new password to this new email address? You know, so let's say Marco's real email address was something at Mac.com. I forgot my password to my .Mac mailbox. Can you email me the password to my Yahoo.com account? And they did it. Yeah. Seriously? Well, I, I don't know that that's true or not. I mean, well, that's true. I mean, th- th- just because it was, it was posted on the blog doesn't mean that it's true. Yeah. Yeah, this Wired article seems like they, they did you know, go back and research and they have a lot of details and specific times and all that. But, uh, you know, the the issue is really, you know, how many people know somebody that claims they've been hacked, you know, the iTunes is hacked, the Gmail or whatever. And usually what it comes down to is just poor security practices. You know, they're using a password like password or something. And, and if you know somebody's email address and you run through some of those real basic emails, uh, passwords, you're going to find that a lot of accounts get hacked that way. I don't really call that a legitimate hacking because that's just stupidity. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, to a large extent, there was nothing he could have done to protect himself on this. Yeah. And, uh, and granted, on the back end, I guess it turns out he didn't have a lot of backups mm-hmm. on a lot of this stuff. So he really had a lot more pain because of that. And that's not very smart. But in terms of that initial release of the password from Apple to this hacker, what could he have done? I mean, there it wasn't like his failure to have a very secure password that, that allowed this to happen. You I know, agree. It was social engineering, and we got to be more careful. And that means there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be really angry with Apple because they lose their password and they don't remember the security questions. And, you know, there's going to be a really difficult period there, and they're going to go nuts. Well, you know what? Apple has a lot of stores nationwide. Why don't you have to walk? I mean, maybe walk into one and present a photo ID. I know that's not a perfect solution because I personally live two hours from an Apple store, and I know there's not one everywhere. But that's one way. I'm sure there are others that are better. But simply providing the last four of your social or your credit card and a billing address is not a good one. Yeah. Or neither is the last four of your social because that's the other piece that gets out. Yeah, I do think that as Mac Power users, there's some things we can take from this. Um, number one is, you know, take those security questions seriously, even though Apple didn't in this case. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm almost certain that Apple is going to completely ramp up and Nazify this whole process. You know, it's going to be really terrible if you lose your stuff uh, from Apple and you need help over the phone. Good luck, you know, and, and rightly so, frankly. But uh, for us users, what are we going to do? Uh, one thing I've always done is those those security questions is I don't answer them honestly. You know, I just pick three questions and I'll either just make up some jibber jabber or I'll just have one password create like, you know, some 30 character nonsense. Mm-hmm. And and I'll take a screenshot of that and save it in one password. Yeah. The one thing you do need to be worried about with that 30 character nonsense is sometimes you have to repeat the answer to that security question to somebody over the phone. Yeah, but it's okay. What what yeah. is your mother's maiden name? Uh, or, or like AQ four you know. Z. Yeah. Who was your high school teacher? Monkeys, bananas, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. No. Um, uh, so that's something we can do, but that wouldn't protect Matt. Yeah. Um, I guess we have to trust in the people we deal with, and you know, Apple has 
you know, this is to me the same level as the day Dropbox left the front door open. Uh, The other things that you can do is, is be aware of how interconnected all of your stuff is. One of the things that I've done is, uh, you know, I've, I've started, I used to have one credit card that I intentionally, I I mean, I, I carried two credit cards, one that I use online and one that I use in real life, if that makes sense. And I've, cause I thought, oh, well, if a credit card's going to get compromised, I'm going to have this one for online stuff and this one for in real life stuff. And I've now changed that policy. In fact, my bank offers a security feature called ShopSafe. And I think a, a bunch of credit card companies do where it will create a virtual credit card number for you that you can use with a specific merchant. And I've started utilizing that. So I now have a, I've had a ShopSafe number with Apple for a while. Um, cause I had an issue where my credit card got compromised and both times it was the one set up with iTunes. I don't know if it was just coincidental or not, but it happened twice and it was bizarre. So I've had a shop safe number with Apple for a while. I've now got one with Amazon and with a couple of other people. So if, even if that door does get left open, the last four of my credit card numbers are gibberish cause they're not going to be repeated with the same people. Yeah. And that's with a lot of major credit cards have that service. Yeah. The other thing uh, that this has really got me thinking about, David, and, you know, we've given them a hard time, is uh, Google. Google offers two-step verification, which I have enabled on all of my Google accounts. And this is a, this is a compelling reason that you may want to look at making Google your primary email provider. Yeah. Or, or at least making that password reset email go to a Google account that you have two-step verification on and maybe you know maybe most of your password verification resets like the one with your bank or the one with twitter or the one with any of your other services maybe those don't go to your me account i I hope that apple would enable two-step verification on icloud because i would use it yeah so and two-step verification means two independent sources right Um, uh, you know for instance you'll get a message on your phone in addition to putting in your password uh, another place to use that is VeriSign has what they call VeriSign Identity Protection, VIP. Mm-hmm. And I use it on my iPhone. And I use it in particular with my uh, PayPal account. So uh, there's an app on my phone that every 30 or 60 seconds, I don't remember, uh, puts up a new six-digit number. And so when I log into PayPal, I have to have my account name, I have to have my account password, and I have to have that six-digit number that just issued within the last 30 or so seconds. And so in order to get in, you'd need, you'd need my phone. Mm-hmm. You'd need my unlocked phone. And I think that's, that's the kind of stuff we're going towards on some of this major stuff. Yeah, and, and Google can, can do two-step verification either through text messaging or they've also got an app that will do something very similar. But yeah, the VeriSign yeah. um, with PayPal is a good idea. You might want to put a link to that in the show notes. It's already there. Oh, good. It's already there. Yeah, it's it's a you know it's a scary new world. I don't think we have the answers for this, frankly. I mean, I don't know. It, it could have been any one of us if Apple wants to reset our password for our account. Um, I guess another thing to think about is what is the account you use for registration of some of this stuff. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of email accounts and I do kind of spread it around. Um, maybe you have, maybe you go crazy and get multiple credit cards uh, and, and sandbox them. I guess that's the right word, right? You well, know, so you, see, have, you have a credit card for Amazon and you have another one for iTunes or something. I'm hesitant about the multiple credit card thing. That's why I use the shop safe thing. Cause at the end of the day, that all goes back to one credit card. Multiple credit yeah. card can create credit issues and, you know, bill issues and things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, either way, I don't think we have all the answers, but I thought we should talk about it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the only other thing you can do is um, we can make noise about this. We can make people or make companies like Amazon and Apple change their policies. You know, good on Wired for reporting this. You know, I'm not such an Apple fangirl that I would say, oh, no, it's not really Apple's fault. Oh, no, this no, is Apple's fault. This is yes, totally fault. Apple's fault. Yeah. Um, you know, Matt definitely admits that he could have done some things better, but this is totally Apple's fault. Yeah. And um, they, they need to fix this, and I want them to fix it now, and I want to hear from them about how they fix it. Yeah. And Certainly, we can do the best we can, and we need to make sure that we're doing the best we can. So um, the other thing that I would say is have a contingency plan, because if something like this does happen, you're probably going to be pretty freaked out and not know what to do or when to do it, because I, I know if this happened to me, I would be freaking out. And maybe the well, time to think of, of a contingency plan is before this happens. You know, well, like one thing you can do, and we've talked about this in reference to one password is... All your credit cards have 800 numbers on the back of them. Yeah. You know, stick it in one password. Have all that data close by. Yeah. So I guess this isn't a case where you lose your wallet, but at the same time, have it digitally close by. Because if, if, you know, the wheels come off, you want to be able to go fix it or at least shut this down as quickly as possible. Right. Right. All right. So, gosh, that's just terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah, there's nothing good to say. Yeah. Just be careful. All right. Okay, let's talk about some more feedback. Yeah, because we do have some good things to say there. Um, I got an email from Del Mario because I was complaining on the last show and on a couple of shows. I think I complained about it on uh, the Mac Roundtable about the Mountain Lion VIP feature that I really don't like. I, I had such high hopes for the VIP feature in Mountain Lion. But what I don't like about it is that, David, if I add you as a VIP, I want it to act more like Google's priority mailbox. But instead what it does is it shows me like a smart mailbox any email I've ever received from you, which, as you can imagine, is quite a lot. And I don't want to see every email I've ever received from you. I just want to see the emails from you that are unread that I actually need to deal with in that VIP inbox among the mass of my email. So what Del Mario said is, is that he continued to use the VIP feature by marking people as VIPs, but then going ahead and creating a smart email box uh, that includes sender is VIP and the messages within the last two weeks, or maybe you could even say the messages unread or move the, you know, set the criteria however you want to set it for. So there you go. Yeah, smart. Yep. Uh, you know, it's different. It, you know, it's Apple's version, which is not going to be as sophisticated, frankly, as what you can do with a Google VIP or what's it called? Google Smart Mailbox. Priority Mailbox. Yeah. yeah it will continue to evolve, I hope. Yeah, the notification feature will be nice when we get to iOS 6. Agreed. Uh, okay, uh, Kevin wrote in about Hazel on a large scale. He's in a big law office, and they're, they're starting to use Hazel to auto-file documents. And, and the way they're doing it is they are putting um, a Hazel rule to put documents into individual folders, and then from there they want to additionally sort it into additional subfolders, and they want to run another series of rules in that subfolder. And he says it's getting tedious because it's a network and there's a whole bunch of different computers. And uh, if I you've got a lot of clients, I mean, that's a lot of rules. Yeah. And you're creating yeah. a new rule every time you set up a new client. Yep. And uh, it's possible, though, because you can duplicate the rules. And with a little training, you could have staff do it. But what I would recommend you do is you run those rules at the source, at the, at the action folder, the scanned folder, wherever it's at. There's no reason to run those rules on individual subfolders. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, that's the way I would do it. Although, um, I guess if 
I, you know, I have a lot of rules and I don't have any problem. So I don't think it's necessarily an issue. But if you want the benefit of Hazel, you've got to tell it what to do. Yeah. Uh, we talked in our Hazel show, continuing with Hazel, uh, Tommy wrote in and, and we talked about one of his rules on our show about, you know, take the mail downloads because mail has its own kind of separate download folder, which is hidden inside your library folder and move downloads from the mail library downloads folder into the downloads folder so that you know when you needed to actually deal something. Well, Tommy just wrote in to update us that since Mountain Lion, the mail downloads folder has changed and people may want to update their Hazel rule. And we'll put a link to the Macworld Hints article in there about it, but it's actually now in libraries, containers, com.apple.mail, data, library, mail downloads, which is a very obvious place for it to be. Of course. That's the first place I looked. (laughs) It is exactly where I looked. So... We'll, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, but if you were using that Hazel rule and notice that it's no longer working, it's because the folder's no longer there. Yeah. Speaking of which, I have uh, got a lot of rules and things I've put on the website over the years, and I just moved to Squarespace 6, and some of those download links aren't working, and I'm getting some emails about that. Hang in there, guys. I'm going to have it fixed. In fact, it's going to be easier than ever to get to that stuff when I'm done. So. Yeah. Um. We got an email uh, from Jason who was talking about, you know, workflows for getting text to the PC. And uh, and he says he's okay, you know, with putting off the fonts and the margins and line spacing and all that. But, you know, he does have, like, some particular characters. In his case, he's looking for the section symbol and italicizing. Um, there really isn't a good solution for that with the baked-in way iOS works, you know. Uh, I would recommend you use a Dropbox-friendly text editor like Byword or Notesy or one of the literally hundreds of them listed on, you know, Brett Terpster's website. Uh, Just find the one that does Dropbox and gets it over to your PC as easy as possible. When you're looking for particular characters on the iPad, uh, you'll be surprised a lot of them are there. You just have to hold down something and let it show up. I don't know. I'm going to look and see if I can find a good source on the Internet for all of those different key combinations. As an example, if you just hold down the period, you get .net, .com, .org, .us. If you hold down the at symbol, that one doesn't do anything. But if you hold down the S, you get um, uh, various Latin versions of iterations of S. So a lot of that stuff is there. You just have to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, another good option is our old friend Markdown. You know, you can write this stuff in Markdown. And then on the even on the PC, there are applications that will convert from Markdown to uh, rich text, which can then go into your word processor. One of my favorite, I believe it's called MonkeyWrite. Let me just search this really quick. Uh, write Monkey. Uh, see, I was close. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's called Write Monkey. It's free. And it's it's a really simple text editor on the PC. Whenever I find myself stuck on a PC, that is what I use. And it does Markdown. It does write in Markdown. I believe it converts, too. I've never had the opportunity to convert something on the PC. But I believe WriteMonkey does it. And if not, um, search it. I'm sure there's something else that does it as well. All right. David wrote to me, and not you, I'm assuming, but if so, that's fine. I'll answer your question. And I've been talking about how I turned off my landline and went to OB connected to Google Voice. 
And he says he's ready to turn off his landline, too. I think in his case, he's actually going to be in Europe for several months and, and just doesn't really need his landline and wants to transition away from that anyway. But he wants to port his number to a voice over IP service since he's temporarily going abroad where he'll have broadband. Um, UMA is another service that I've talked about that it's something that I'm very interested in. And UMA is one of those services where you pay up front for the box. It's like $199 plus you just have to pay the monthly taxes and fees on your bill, which cost about $5. And then you pay about 40 bucks to port your number. So UMA will work, but he's looking at a $240 startup charge just to get in. And I think that's probably going to be his best option. In fact, Uma is what I would be using if I wasn't using Google Voice and if everybody didn't already know my Google Voice number. Because everybody I know who has used the Uma service just absolutely raves about it. Um, as far as I know, OB does not appear to be capable of porting a number over to OB because OB really doesn't have a number associated with it. That's why OB has teamed up with, with Google Voice is because... Google Voice is the number that's associated with with OB. So if you're looking to port your existing number, you're going to need to go with a service that actually has a number. I mean, there are things like Vonage and other things like that, but I think as you found, those are those are probably getting getting expensive. So for what I know about and from what I've researched, UMA is probably going to be your best bet in terms of your happy medium of long-term quality and price. Of course, there is that initial startup. So I think you're onto something with UMA, but if anybody has any better ideas, uh, drop us a line and let us know. Yeah. We also heard from Jeff who talked about uh, Dropbox and security concerns, which I guess is relevant based on our earlier talk. Yep. And he recommends a service called Boxcryptor, and it allows you to merge Dropbox and security. You can download it at boxcryptor.com. Uh, I haven't installed it yet. I'm looking at it. There's a couple of these services um, that uh, claim to encrypt your cloud storage. Um, this one says they can do 256-bit encryption, which is pretty darn good. And they have uh, coverage for iOS, uh, Windows, Linux, Mac, Android. So it seems like they've got all the bases covered. Excellent. I'm going to check into this. Um, it may be a solution. Good deal. All right. Well, I actually thought this was going to be a short show, but it ended up not being. Hopefully, our, they never are. <laughs> our, our, our Skype issues uh, are being appropriately edited out, and nobody will ever know about them. So, uh, But let's tell people where they can find links to everything that we've talked about and how to get a hold of us. Yeah. So if you want to send us an email, send it to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Yeah. Uh, you can find links to everything that we talked about on our website at MacPowerUsers.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at MacPowerUsers, and Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. Yep. Uh, oh, and we should say, David, this is show 98. Show 100 is coming up. We've already mentioned that, but it's going to be live on Saturday, August 25th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, whatever time that happens to be in your time zone. Come check it out. We will be live on 5x5 celebrating our 100th episode. If you miss it, it'll be a podcast in the feed later, but... I think there are going to be lots of extra special things going on live. So come see us. Yeah. And, and um, Dan, I was thrilled. Dan added us to the uh, live notification in the 5x5 app. So if you're uh, owner of the 5x5 app on your iPhone, flip the switch there to on. We promise we won't waste your time. Oh, I'm going to flip the switch to on. And uh, yeah, sweet. And yeah. if you aren't, go get the live 5x5 app so you can listen to us no matter where you happen to be at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Saturday. August yes. 25th. It's going to be fun. We, we've got some great, great uh, people. I mean, we had so many submissions. Thank you, everyone who submitted. Um, 
we, you know, I just can't get over how many smart, intelligent people listen to the show. I, I don't know why. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we, we narrowed it down because we only have so much time. But we got some great guests lined up uh, who are regular listeners who do some amazing stuff with their Macs. So that's going to be a good show. And frankly, it may become a thing. We might do that more than once. Yeah. I mean, if it goes well, we might do it more than once. If it crashes and burn, we'll just pretend that it never happened. Exactly. Yeah, that's our plan. Um, thank you to our sponsors, uh, Fujitsu, Daisy Disc, and our welcome to our new sponsor, Durobo. Uh, we're pleased to have you all with us, and uh, we will see you all next time. All right. <laughs>